there was definitely a, a time in my life where I, I had to tell myself, it's okay to be broken. That's okay. The, the goal in life isn't to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. There, there's no one in history <laughs> that we can point to that's lived a perfect life. So the reality is, and you said this so wonderfully when I was at UTMB and I was like, I know this, when I was so disappointed in my performance, I was so down. And you said, it isn't about how you finish. It's about how you respond to this journey and how you continue on. And I'm like, I know this, I know this. And it was just like, that is such a great reminder for everything in life because life, when it comes down to it, it's the journey that's the most fulfilling part. That's Sally McRae. And this is episode 80 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week I sat down with one of my most requested guests, Sally McRae. Sally is a professional ultra runner living in Southern California, and I've been fortunate to be her coach for a little over two years now. Earlier this year, Sally won her first race on the Ultra Trail World Tour, the Mozart 100 in Austria, and more recently, she finished 23rd at the UTMB, which is her highest ever finish at that event in what was one of the grittiest races that I've ever had the pleasure to witness firsthand. This is a long one, folks. It comes in right at about 90 minutes, and it does not disappoint, I promise you. So much to take away from this one about relationships, communication, competitiveness, learning to give yourself grace, recognizing our victories, remembering what's important in life, and so, so much more. Sally's got an amazing story, and it's a real treat to let her tell it on the podcast, so I'm just going to leave it at that. Let's get right into it with Sally McRae. This has been a long time coming. I've coached you now for a couple years. I talk to you on an almost weekly basis. You are probably my most requested podcast guest. Honestly, I'm not just telling you that because we're here. (laughs) Um, But here we are, Sally McRae. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you at your home in Mm -hmm. Southern California. I think an interesting place to start, because this is one question I don't know the answer to, is <laughs> the one. <laughs> what is your day? What has your day been like so far before I arrived here an hour and a half or so ago? Um, let's see. I woke up at three thirty today, uh, and we were talking about this earlier. When I know I have a lot going on, I have a lot going on over the course of the next four days. Sometimes I toss and turn. So I got up at um, at three thirty, and I, I started. A load of laundry, did some dishes. Uh, I started baking because tomorrow we're we're doing that special run, and we're gonna do breakfast. So I'm gonna bring some baked goods. I uh, started returning some some client emails, doing a little bit of work on the email, and then my husband um, got up, started getting ready for work, and so made a pot of coffee, uh, packed the kids' lunches, <laughs> and then it was six forty-five. <laughs> So you got more done in the first three hours of your day than I certainly did before noon. Sometimes it's I'll, I'll get up at four and I, I will go for a run. That's usually like the first workout of the day. And it's never 
an intense run. It's like, how is my body going to respond to Coach Mario's workout today? <laughs> so I do a check-in with myself. But uh, today I needed to do stuff around the house so that I could be peaceful for the rest of the day. <laughs> I think I should interject here and get it out of the way early. For those of you who don't know, I am Sally's coach. I've worked with her for a couple of years now. Well, tell me about that. You had 10 miles easy on your schedule today. Yeah. Has that been done yet? <laughs> I did half of it. Okay. <laughs> So I'll do the other half, but I'll tell you this, and we've chatted about this before. Um, I did run on the day that you told me not to run. So <laughs> this is not getting off to a good start. So Monday was supposed to be my recovery day. And I actually ran on that day because I knew as the week went on that I would get busier. And I do that sometimes just because I know that, okay, if that day is so crazy, I know I'll already have my miles in. And typically if it's recovery miles, then, um, then I'll run them. So I'm a, still above my mileage today <laughs> for the week. But I mean, to be fair, we have that open understanding in our relationship because I know how crazy and chaotic your life is and can get yes. at times. And especially now where it's not race week, mm -hmm. we're not super close to your next race, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about here very shortly because I do think this will come out before that. Mm -hmm. But there's wiggle room and yes. there has to be because you've got two kids, you've mm -hmm. got a lot going on professionally, personally, you're also training at a very high level. So it's important mm -hmm. that there is that wiggle room where it's, you know what, Monday is typically your rest day. Maybe it needs to be on Wednesday or Thursday this week because of the way things are laid Yeah. Out. And I, I have to say to our listeners too, this is, you know, Mario is not only my coach, he's a massive mentor in my life and someone that I'm constantly bouncing things off of, or you're always talking me off a cliff. <laughs> I feel like that's happening a lot too. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people in the world that know the ins and outs of my life like you do. I mean, outside of my family, of course, but, um, you know, and just the, yeah, the high level pressure and, and stress that I deal with day in, day out. It's funny because I, I coach too. I do some online coaching. I have a small roster and people will often ask me, why in the world do you have a coach when, when you are a coach? And I think that's such a, a great discussion because sometimes when people think of a coach, they're like, I need someone that's going to give me some workouts. Right. And the reality is, is like, yeah, I could write some workouts for myself, but you know, as a human being, I don't always see all parts of me, all sides of me. And I also, I don't just need, so I don't need to be motivated to go on a run. I need someone that's going to help me on many other things. And I think the mental coaching is probably <laughs> where you've come in quite a bit and have helped me tremendously. But that's such a major part of it. To your point, a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that the least important part of my job is actually writing the training schedule. So true. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> that's a part of, of coaching. But mm -hmm. actual coaching is more than just delivering workouts. It's developing a relationship with someone. Mm -hmm. It's understanding them, not just as an athlete, but as a person and how athletics fits into their life and how the rest of their life affects their athletics because that's how you're going to have success. If mm -hmm. you don't understand that relationship, it's just like it's it's the coach-athlete relationship is, is not going to work. If you mm -hmm. just want workouts, you can 
buy training plans for yeah, people. You can, you can find them. one online for free and they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. and they're pretty good. If you're, if you're very accountable and you don't need that person to bounce things off of, or maybe that's someone else in your life who fulfills that role. But coaching mm-hmm. is way more than just delivering so true. workouts because you could write your own schedule Yep. Um, yeah. very effectively, I, mm-hmm. I would argue. But it can also, sometimes you just can't get out of your own way. And I don't mean that to you no, personally because that's, that's been me as an athlete as well. And part yeah. of why I got into coaching because as an athlete, I couldn't get out of my own way. Mm-hmm. And it was because of good coaches that I was able to have the success that mm-hmm. I did. But that also is what spurred me to want to do this as part of my career. Yeah. And that's something I've appreciated so much. I feel like I'm giving an introduction to you now, which I think that you need because you're always talking uh, about everyone else and asking the questions. It shouldn't but... <laughs> be about me, but I appreciate Well, it should that. be. I, sh- I should be the one to interview you, actually. But I, I think there's been about five times that I, I've told you I'm going to retire. <laughs> I'm done. I'm retiring. This is terrible. That was a horrible performance. You know, I've just, you've, I've, I think I've cried and yelled and <laughs> everything on the phone. And you've always just been that, that anchor. But that's um, my main job. My, my main job, yeah. and I've told you this before, and I've said it to all my other athletes, is to provide perspective. And mm-hmm. that happens in a number of different ways. It most often happens in those moments where <laughs> you've either had a subpar performance, you've been dealing mm-hmm. with injury for a long time, you've been mm-hmm. frustrated for one reason or another for a long time. And, and, and that's coaching is providing that perspective to be honest with the athlete and be like, no, you're, you're really not done. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going through a difficult time, but it's, it's just a period of time. And it's like, if you can work through that, those lessons end up translating on race day and they also end up translating in other areas of your life as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The reason I started back to my original question <laughs> with that was to sort of set the stage. Because this, is, wait, this is the dangerous part of our conversations always is our brain is going 100 miles an hour in 40, 40 different directions. So people listening, I apologize <laughs> in advance. Lots of tangents coming at you. <laughs> well, if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be 80 something. So those who've been listening regularly know that I go off on all kinds of tangents and I don't have a very straight line that I follow when I have these conversations, There's but no I do, notes. but I do come back to, I do come back to points. The reason I started with that original question mm-hmm. about what your day has looked like is cause I, I, I didn't know specifically what it looked like, but I knew that it involved an early wake up and I knew that you juggled a lot before I got here at mm-hmm. one o'clock or so <laughs> this afternoon. Um, and I think that's I think that's really interesting because unlike a lot of my listeners, you are a professional athlete. It's a mm-hmm. big part of your life and who you are and how you provide for your family. So you're fitting all of that in around all of the other stuff that most of the people listening to this podcast mm-hmm. do, getting their kids off to school. I mean, <laughs> I wish there were a visual for this podcast because coming into the kitchen of Sally, there was a charcuterie plate, which has been removed from in front of me right now. It's just probably a good thing. There were baked goods for this event tomorrow. She's got snacks for her kids when they come home from school. Uh, you're answering client emails. You've got two running camps coming up here mm-hmm. You know, in a couple of weeks. You're juggling it all. Has your life always been some level of crazy like that? <laughs> yes, I can say that with a definitive yes. I grew up in a family of seven, five kids in the house. Um, I would say that my, the makeup of my family, it was pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad came from a long list of um, actors, professional um, actors and musicians. And so 
and and he was from a really big family too. So I think just even my home life was, there was always music blasting. There's always like an instrument playing. There was always a sibling to play with or fight with. And, uh, we lived loudly. Uh, but my home life was also really chaotic too. There was a lot of things that I had to figure out very young that maybe you wouldn't necessarily want a child to have to figure out. And, you know, I started, I started working really young and, um, but I was also like really determined. I was a big dreamer and I wanted to do, I wanted to be someone when I grew up. I remember thinking that like, I want to be famous or I want to, you know, whatever big dream I had, I was like, I, I, I really, really want to do that. And I had a mom that, um, never, ever deterred me from that. You know, I think looking back now as a parent, uh, some of the things that I said that I was, I wanted to do or that I, I was working toward, it would probably sound kind of crazy or silly or cute, but she was very, uh, very consistent with, you can, you can do whatever you want, you know? So I think my, my family life, the way that I was, brought up with kind of some craziness, um, and then having to, to work at a younger age that has carried over into my adult life. It's carried over into everything that I've done. I think it's why I, and I know this and you know, this too, <laughs> you know, this better than most people. I do take on a lot, uh, maybe more than, than I should. Um, but I'm also very curious as to, but what can I handle? <laughs> well, we're gonna, that's a road we're going to go down a trail, let's say we'll go down here in a little bit. But where did, where do you fall in the sibling lineup? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> oldest? I'm the middle child. You're the middle. Yeah. Okay. People either think I'm the oldest or, or the middle. And the reason um, I thought you were the oldest and you just alluded to this, how you started working at mm-hmm. an early age, but the role, and I know this through the conversations that we've had, the role that you had in your household was almost that of a parent in some yes. ways. And now in your life with your two kids and your husband here at home, not that they don't contribute, um, <laughs> but you are the head of the household. I mean, you yeah. you run the show here and that's, mm-hmm. you know, and that's very obvious. And it's And it's interesting to see where those you know, where those seeds were planted. Is that something, I mean, you mentioned how you took a little bit of it from your mom, but is that something that's just always come naturally to you? Yeah. To take charge and... You know, a part of it was, um, you know, sometimes people give, you know, sometimes we, we, we title kids, you know, that's the peacemaker that, you know, that kid's the one that keeps everyone happy and laughing. And, um, I, at a, at a very young age and I have a very vivid, memory. But uh, my, my dad was pretty disapproving of me. Um, you know, I have some good memories with him, but also some, some violent memories too. And I remember him very specifically getting really upset at my mom or the kids if, you know, maybe the house wasn't kept in a certain way or, um, if dinner, you know, wasn't right or, um, I know he hated it. It's so funny, but he hated my laugh and, um, I get sent to my room a lot. So I was really sensitive to, to just his presence. And I learned to really pick up on what the day was going to be like. I, I was really sensitive to how he opened and closed the door. And, uh, for whatever reason, he was the hardest on me and my brother. 
And so what I learned to do as a young child was I thought if I can keep the house clean, then dad's going to be happier. Yes. Cause it was, you know, it wasn't just that he would yell. It was like furniture was thrown across the house and you know, it was a scene. It was a scene and it was scary. And, um, you know, and your mom's crying and it, you just, things, things are so chaotic. Um, it's amazing how resilient we are and how, how as humans, we, we kind of go into survival mode and we just know what to do. And so from the time I was, I'd say probably five, I started cleaning the whole house and I would, I would make everybody's bed. Um, I would vacuum, I'd make sure the bathroom was clean. I would do the dishes. Um, by the time I was like seven or eight, I would make all of the lunches before school and, I just started to become a worker and, but also as a young child, I really longed for my dad to approve of me Mm -hmm. and my dad ran his own business. He did like plumbing and electrical. So I started asking if I could go to work with him on the weekends and I learned, you know, from the time I was in young elementary, I learned how to paint walls. I would help him lay tile floors. I mean, do really little jobs, like help lug, you know, tools, but that was how I was able to connect with them. And I was like, if I can be a good worker, then I'll get this time with my dad. And so now the way that that has carried over into my adult life, it's like, well, I've just been doing this my entire life. It's ingrained in you at this it's point. It's ingrained in me, but it's something, you know, is it, it might sound sad. I mean, yeah, there are elements of it that are sad because you're just thinking of this, this little girl. Right. And I would never want my daughter to ever feel that way, but I can see the, the hope in it too, because you realize that sometimes the, the most painful things that we go through or the brokenness. And I, you know, I think a lot of us have brokenness, you know, there's no one's life that's, that's perfect or without pain, but it, it paves, it helps paves, pave a way for something good. And, and I think that a lot of my brokenness as a child and uncomfortable and sad situations are what have made me so strong and have allowed me to handle so much in my just everyday adult life. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. An interesting connection to pull out of it is Mm -hmm. this proclivity for work Mm -hmm. that you threw yourself into because your dad would approve of you. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a result of, of the work. I'm doing this work because this would be, the result and fast forwarding that to your life now mm-hmm. does it still exist that connection where you put in the work maybe it's you're running and mm-hmm. all the miles that you're running because you want to have a certain result in a race mm-hmm. and I wonder what the connection there is like between okay if you would put in all this work and your dad would still get mad at you yeah <laughs> Is it a similar feeling to if you put in all this work now and maybe the race doesn't go so well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think you as my coach have probably been able to see that. I, you know, I, I was on a podcast a couple years ago and I remember the question was, what is the race that you're mo- most proud of? And it was an extremely difficult thing for me to answer because I've, I haven't sat and thought about that. And I think up into that, that point at that time, I was like, there isn't really a race that I'm really proud of, you know, and this is, 
you know, I'd... Because the result wasn't equivalent to the work? It wasn't equivalent to the work. Yeah. And I think that is something that I will always have to battle. And it, but it is something I'm aware of. And, you know, I'm married to a man that is you know, he's on the complete, he's so opposite of, of my dad, but he, um, he's known me since I was 18 and he, he's so gracious and he's always so proud of me. And that's something that I get to come home to after, after that race and be reminded of that. And I think that, um, you know, and also having a coach like you and then, then just kids that are just like my children, they're always like signs and just so happy. Like after every, doesn't matter how the race went, you know? And I think it's something that over the years I've had to, I have to very consciously remind myself that, yeah, I'm, I'm a professional trail runner and I work hard at what I do and I have these dreams of the race going this particular way. And I, I hope so much that the work would translate into, you know, the result that I'm aiming for. And when it doesn't, that's very difficult for me. And, but so I have to consciously remind myself like this also has nothing to do with whether or not I'm accepted for just who I am and whether there's value in me anymore. It's, and this is, I mean, this is stuff that I, I'm constantly telling my kids before Mackenzie heads out for a running race or before Isaiah steps onto the football field or the baseball field or basketball, he plays three sports right now. I tell them, I'm like, I, I just want you to do your best. And if you lose, or if you come in last place, like I love you just the same. And yeah, I think that's so powerful. I, you know, I lost my mom so young. Um, and I always ha- kind of had like an antagonist protagonist in my house that it was very difficult for me to always completely believe the words that I mo- my mom was saying when my dad was constantly there saying the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so when you grow up hearing so much negativity and hearing that you are, you know, this horrible person or all these terrible things that this person thinks of you, it's hard not to wear that. It's hard not to have a bad day or a failure or a bad race and feel like he was right. You know, I, I am everything that, that he said I was, I am a failure. I am not, I'm not good enough. And so I, you know, if, if you follow me on social media, like I do, I do talk a lot about grace. I talk a lot about grace, talk about forgiveness I talk about failing. And it's this idea of all of that is part of every human's journey. Like we're supposed to fail and we are supposed to get up and try again over and over and over and over again. Cause the reality is, is that the value that is in us today was always there the first day that we were born. And that will never, ever, ever change. And for whatever reason, we have to be continually reminded of that. Right. I mean, it's amazing some of the things I'll share. It's like the simplest line. And, I was, and I, I'll think to myself, that's been said a million times, but people will comment and be like, I needed to hear this today or I'm crying or thank you. And it's like, we all need that. Like we need to be reminded of the simplest things every single day. And so that's, I think that's the, I love that you asked me that question. No one's ever asked me that question before, by the way. Um, but yes, that, that is something that I will battle with for the rest of my life. How have you learned to navigate it mm -hmm. over the years? Because you just described how you have to remind yourself Mm -hmm. of it, 
but sometimes we forget to remind ourselves yeah. of it. So what's the work that you have you have done mm-hmm. over the years to become better at giving yourself grace? Mm-hmm. You know, I I really hung tightly to especially the the final year that my mom was around some of the conversations we had and I was really grateful that she you know, it wasn't like she died of a heart attack or in a car accident that I didn't get, you know, when she was, there was like four months that I had with her that was like, she, she is dying. And it was so intense. You know, I was 17 and, um, we'd have these long conversations and she was so adamant. And I really feel like, um, I've, I've watched a handful full of people die in my life. And I feel like there's something when someone is, is on their way to leave the earth and they know it, there's this incredible wisdom that comes out and also just an urgency of like, here's the most important thing. If, if I have to sum up everything in life, this is what I want you to know. And my mom had five kids and, you know, I real and, and losing her changed my whole perspective and worldview of, of even my goals, like what I was going after and things that were important to me. And so the most important thing to her, and there was like three things, but the first one was like, you need to realize that you can't be bitter and angry when I'm gone, that you have to live your life still. Like, I I want you to still be Sally and go after all these things. I can't be here and you need to accept that. And she was, her messaging always just growing up was always like, just be you, like be, it's, you know, don't get so flustered about like, cause for a long time I was very tiny. I was really small. I was like four foot eight going into high school. I was like 85 pounds. I was a tiny little one. And so I just remember being really frustrated like that as a soccer player and other things that I did, but her, she was constantly just, you, you know, who you were the day you were born. That's how you're supposed to be. Like every part of you isn't a mistake. Like you're not a mistake. And even me leaving, this isn't a mistake. This is part of your story. Is a part of your journey, and that's a lot for a seventeen-year-old to digest. Yeah, that's heavy stuff. <laughs> it's heavy stuff, and it's um, it it didn't sit with me right away. I mean, it took many years. Um, you know, I had, and I'd love to say that it was like she was gone, and then that was it. But there was a lot of terrible things within nine months after she died that I I remember coming home to an empty house. Um, and just literally dropping my backpack on the ground. My sisters were in foster care. My dad was in jail. My older siblings were gone. I didn't know where they were just dealing with my mom's death in their own way. But I remember dropping to my knees and just wailing and so upset that how can I not be angry? Every, like my whole family's gone. My mom's gone. I haven't even graduated from high school yet. And so to have to, I had to choose in that moment. I'm either going to continue to be just this bitter person, bitter and angry about things that I can't change, or I'm really going to rest in the words, these last words that my mom told me, and that was just continue to be you. But she also, she was a strong believer in, in God, and she, you know, she never wanted me to stray away from that, to remember that your value is in God and who, who he created to be is something so much, who he created you to be is something so much more wonderful than, you know, so never stop trying to discover that. 
And that's really what propelled me in life. And it's I never think, left you. And it's never left me. I think that that's what gives me hope every time I fail too, is like, this isn't what defines me. You know, the failures aren't define me, even my accomplishments. I, I'll be honest. I, this last June, when I won Mozart 100, I remember just a few days after being home, like forgetting about it, completely forgetting about it. It wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it would be. It was like, yeah, my first win on the tour. Like this is, I mean, I remember having that conversation with you. Like you were so proud of me and you're just like, it was a big deal. Like you want to race on the tour. Like that's you, that's what you want. And I was like, yeah, it is. But it was such a weird, um, experience. Cause you think it's going to feel another way. You think that you're just going to ride that wave and it's going to be amazing. And then you're going to feel differently and it's your whole perspective is going to change. But I was right back to where I was and it was like, but that actually doesn't change anything about who I am. Like I'm still Sally. I'm still like, now it's just onto the, onto the next next thing. And so I've always, um, and I, you know, I, I try to encourage even, uh, my athletes in this too. I, I've never wanted to, um, I've never wanted to be only identified as just a runner. And I think the reason why is because when my, when my mom was dying, I was on this national level soccer team and it was, I was being scouted by schools all over the nation. And that was my dream. I was the first one in my family to go to college. I, um, you know, there's like the season of Brandy Chastain and Mia Hamm. And I really wanted, I wanted that life. Like I wanted to go to North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Like that was the soccer school. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was like the dream that I'd had since I was a little girl. And, um, I remember when my mom passed away those months after that, that desire that desire to have all that was completely gone. And I remember feeling this loss of like, who am I? What am I doing? Like I had so much of that dream was wrapped up in my mom because she encouraged me in it. But at the same time, it was like, that can't be all that life is about. Like it has to be more than just that goal because I sat at my mom's bedside and I watched her take her last breath. And the most important thing to her was just having her kids around her that was it. She didn't say, go and get my dance medals, you know, come give me pictures of my house and, you know, give me my stuff and let's talk about my accomplishments. It was just, she wanted to be around the people that she loved. And my mom had this way of such a beautiful way of making people feel loved, of making people feel seen. And she was, she was quieter, a little bit more of an introvert, but she really valued that one-on-one time with her friends. And, that just greatly impacted me. And so I think it's, you know, as an athlete, I know a lot of people listening can relate to to this, but when we get injured, you know, I, and we read this all the time, just the depression that sometimes comes along with that. Cause it's like, you can't meet up with your social group on the Tuesday night track run. And you're not going out for that Saturday morning long run. And well, even people after their career is over and they can't compete at the level that they once did, mm-hmm. especially at the professional level, when that's what you've poured your yes. entire life into, mm-hmm. you hear the stories of how hard it is for people to move on. And mm-hmm. yes, to, to be the best in the world at something or, you know, the top of your sport, you have to have some level of singular focus or you're just going to get steamrolled. But at the same time, you've got to have a level of balance where you've got something to fall back on, whether it's Mm -hmm. those moments in training that you can't 
go out and run because you've got a little bit of a niggle mm. or, you know, at the ultimate level when you can no longer play your sport for <laughs> X, Y, or Z reason that you have something else that is going to fulfill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think that's been, always been an important exercise for me is if, if this was taken away from you, who are you, you know, are you, and, and what is, what is your value? Can you answer that? I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, mm-hmm. just to be grounded again yeah. and come back to what's important because mm-hmm. whether you're a professional athlete or not, and most everyone listening to this is not, <laughs> we've all gotten caught up in the inertia of life or mm-hmm. our sport or over time we come to think that sport or work or something else that we're heavily involved in is is what defines us mm-hmm. and it's important to remind ourselves or ask ourselves you know does it mm-hmm. yeah that's i i often have um you know suggestions for people that are going through a um an injury or they're not able to run I'll do like those Instagram, ask me a question story. You know, you can ask Mm -hmm. questions and it's, it's one of the top three questions that people ask is I'm injured and I'm having a really hard time with it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice or what do you, and I, you know, one of the biggest things is we, when we look at an injury, it, it's painful. It takes us away from something that we love. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. And in many ways it alters just our everyday life, our schedule and how we approach things. But man, if, if we could just flip the perspective on that and realize that so often the injuries or the failures or the setbacks, they aren't necessarily that the, it's something that's trying to hurt you and, and take you away from what you want. Sometimes it's like a beautiful way to transition you. It opens up your eyes to something that's new. It forces you to step in a new direction. Sometimes it it introduces you to new relationships and people and places. I mean, I think even beyond running, we can think of those things. You didn't get into the college you wanted to, you didn't get the job that you wanted to do, the, that girl that you thought would say yes on the date, you know? And, and I think that if we continue to look at the failures and the letdowns that way, we actually wouldn't, be so afraid of them anymore. Well, that's the paradox of it all. Mm -hmm. We look at something like an injury or losing your job Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be as a setback. Yes. Uh, And it can certainly be Mm -hmm. in many different ways. That's Mm -hmm. the reality of it. And it's important to recognize that too. But if you do flip the perspective, it can also be an opportunity and it can also propel you to something better. You can come back from that injury stronger than you were before it and compete at a higher level. You might find a better job or something Mm -hmm. that is a more appropriate fit for what you want to do in life. But unless that thing happened, you would never have seen it. Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing Mm -hmm. to remind each other of and also remind ourselves of. Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) Question I want to ask you before we went off on that little <laughs> tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, it was great. Is have you always had a hard time recognizing your victories in life? I have. That's 
I can say that with with confidence. <laughs> I don't just mean races yeah. that you've won. Yeah, there's um, yeah, just across the board. I I can always say, you know, there there is something I could have done better. I wanted, you know, I I definitely could have improved. And in some ways, it excites me. Some ways, I'm like, oh man, I'm I'm gonna try that again, but I'm totally gonna do it differently. So, um, I I recognize the good in that. I think sometimes it's how you, you actually propel yourself to be your best self and be at your best is there is an element of, you know, you don't just want to settle and be like, ah, it's fine. But at the same time, um, I think where I will be off balance is when I go for a very long time and just never celebrate anything. And it's just, everything is, isn't good. And it can be as something as little as like every run this week sucked, but it didn't. You know, it's just like I, I wasn't at the pace I wanted to be. Or I didn't feel the way I wanted to. Or I didn't run at the time I was supposed to. Or um, it's maybe little stuff like that. Or even just in my in my parenting or the way I run my household. Or, you know, it's, it is much easier for me to, to pull out all the things I need to work on as opposed to, um, well, look at what you accomplished. And I'll, I'll share this with you. I've never shared this before, I don't think. Um, a couple years ago, I, I recognized that in myself and I thought <laughs> it was actually because, um, my, I've, I've already said it, but my husband's very opposite of me and, um, in like the best way I was talking to him on the phone and I was, we were joking. Cause he's like, I've, I want to ask you about your day, but I also don't because I know I'm going to be overwhelmed when I ask you about your day. Cause, um, so often in the past, he'll say, what did you do today? And he's like, are you kidding me? Because it's so much. Or or he'll see my to-do list sitting on the table and he's like, that's all for today or for the week? <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's like for today. And he's just like, you need to like choose four of those, not 24. And, um, and so I now have, it's just a, a weekly habit where I'll sit down and write down the things that I accomplished and no matter how small they are, but it's just to kind of remind myself. And there's, you know, sometimes I'll, it'll be four o'clock on a Monday and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't get anything done today. And I'm just like stressed and upset. And, you know, I have to run one of the kids to practice and I know I have to come back and get dinner ready. And I'm just like, I didn't, I didn't get anything done. And then I'll sit down and write out everything I did. And I'll be like, oh no, I, I did do a lot today. And I need, I need to show grace to myself or it'll just be like, why am I so tired? You know, it'll be Wednesday. And I'm like, why am I so tired? And then it's like, I'll look at my training log and I'll look at my meetings for that week. And I look back at my plan and I'm like, or you'll call me and I'll remind you (laughs) how many times, right? Countless. (laughs) How many times have I texted you? Like, Hey, something came up and you're like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. (laughs) What now? Well, or when I ask how you're feeling and you say, I'm really pretty tired. And I know for you to just admit that number one is a big deal, but then we start peeling back the layers and I know what you're doing from a training standpoint. Yeah. And then much like you just described with your call with Eddie, you, know, you tell me what you're doing. And I'm like, that was all today. And you ran 18 miles with four by 12 minutes. Yeah. And there, you crazy woman. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I mean, like I said earlier, that's just, that's a, part of me that, you know, maybe that's just a broken part of me and that's okay. I've, um, 
you know, there, there was definitely a a time in my life where I, I had to tell myself it's okay to be broken. Like that's, that's okay. The the goal in life isn't to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. There, there's no one in history (laughs) that we can point to that's lived a perfect life. So the reality is, is, and you said this so wonderfully when I was at UTMB and I was like, I know this when I was so disappointed in my performance, I was so down And you said, you know, it isn't about how you finish. It's about how you respond to this journey and how you continue on. And I'm like, I know this, I know this. And it was just like, that is such a great reminder for everything in life because life, when it comes down to it, it's the journey that's the most fulfilling part. It's not standing by yourself on a podium for five seconds. Well, it's, and that's what it is. That's a moment. This whole <laughs> life, moment. this whole life is a journey. <laughs> is a journey. And, and the people you share it with. That the... sounds so obvious saying it, <laughs> but oftentimes it's the obvious things that we need to be reminded of the yeah. most often. Yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's Aftershocks. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented, best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones are super comfortable and sit outside your ear so you can safely listen to music, tune into this podcast, or even take a phone call while safely being able to hear what's going on around you. Best part about these headphones? For my money, it's the battery life. Aftershocks will last you six hours. That's a quarter of your day. Whether it's a long run or a long commute, Aftershocks headphones will go the distance. Most importantly, Aftershocks headphones sound great. They deliver crisp and clear audio and feature wide dynamic sound range, deep bass, and dual noise-canceling mics. Morning Shakeout listeners can save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, which includes everything you need for your next big run. You get bone conduction headphones to ensure safety and comfort, matching reflective sport belt to tote your phone and keys, a water bottle to stay hydrated, a shoe bag to keep your dirty shoes away from your clean clothes, and a cooling towel for lasting heat relief. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks Endurance Bundles, visit tms.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. My thanks to Aftershocks for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Number of directions I want to go. You've mentioned your husband, Eddie, a bunch of times now. You guys met when you were 18. So that had to be less than a year after your mom passed away. Yeah, it was like exactly a year, um, maybe a few weeks. And what did meeting him do for you at that point of your life? Um, when, well, when I first met him, we we hit it off as, as friends. Like I noticed him because he had these beautiful hazel eyes. And I remember right away telling my roommate about him. There's this guy on the boys soccer team and all the athletes get there early. You know, they're all doing hell week. Um, so it's kind of fun. You get to university before everyone does. This was college. Yeah. So this college is, um, we went to Biola university. So we were both soccer players. And so we do like our three times a day training. And then at night they'd bring the girls and boys soccer teams together. And we'd always do like these crazy games and make all the freshmen do wild stuff. And, Um, so I, I noticed Eddie and, but it was, you know, we hit it off as friends really well. And like I said, he was very introverted. He was really quiet. He didn't talk very much. And then when school started, I realized that a lot of girls liked him and, you know, I was a little rough, (laughs) rough around the edges. I was more of like a tomboy and I was loud and crazy. And I just, 
a lot of the girls that liked him this is so silly, but this is my thinking at that time was just like, those girls are just like beautiful. They're from rich families. Like I cannot compete with them at all. So Eddie and I just, we became, we were best friends and, you know, we were both interested in other people at different times. And, um, but unbeknownst to both of us, we actually always kind of had a little something for each other. So, um, I don't know where we were going with this. I guess when I met him, he, um, I think that first year, so we didn't start dating till I was, till I was 19, but it was, it, it was tricky. Cause I was at that time too, one of my sisters was in juvenile hall. So I was visiting her weekly and I was working two jobs on campus and off campus. And I was taking 18 units and I was a starter on the soccer team. And, um, that's kind of a lot for a freshman. So I think, you know, I didn't, I wasn't always a part maybe of a lot of the, um, some of the social, the social stuff. I, I, was, I was so different from everyone. And I knew that I knew that when I was in high school, I knew that I lived the life of a 30 something and, um, at half that age. Yeah. At half that age. So I think in all honesty, when I met Eddie, I just thought he was very kiddish. And I thought, I really believed that I, if I was ever going to date somebody that it was going to be, it had to be someone 10 years older than me, because if they didn't, like that's that's going to be the only kind of person that can keep up with me <laughs> that's already working and right so <laughs> given what your situation looked like in the years prior to that at home what you had described earlier in this conversation with your dad mm-hmm. was it hard for you to think about having another important male figure in your life um you know, from the time I was, I, for the, for as long as I can remember, so my brother is the oldest mm-hmm. and, um, I think because of the relationship I had with my dad, I was really close with my brother. He's five years older than me. And I just looked up to him. I wanted to be just like him. In fact, when I was seven, um, my mom had taken us all to like fantastic Sam's to get our hair cut. And I like whispered to the person cutting my hair, cut my hair like his. And she literally just but, like butched my hair off. Like just, it was so short. Fantastic Sam's a great obscure yeah. reference, by the way. <laughs> there's, there's some good advertisement for them, right? I don't even know if they're still in business. That's why I said it's a good obscure <laughs> reference. Anyway, sorry to cut off your story, but I was like, wow, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to... I, in many ways I wanted to be a boy. Um, I felt like from, from, and this is such a childish thing, but my worldview at that time was that boys were strong because my dad was good at tossing the girls around. And, um, I thought, well, if I could be strong, then I would be able to defend myself and, Um, and maybe that's just the better way to go about life. So I, that was also why I played soccer. Um, and then in school, I always had a lot of, of boyfriends, but the funny thing was, is that I loved wearing dresses. So there is this side of me, like I loved being a girl, but then I really loved that I, I could like beat the boys up. And I was, I was in elementary school. I was like the fastest in school, but you know, you're a little kid, but I loved running even at that time. So I was like this tough, I was a really tough, gritty girl. And I was in in many ways, you know, kind of just confused about who I was. That's why my mom was always reminding me, like, you just be you, Sally. And so um, I I grew up, uh, man, I remember even playing on a couple boys' soccer teams. 
and making like the all-star team. And I remember dad screaming at me from the sideline, don't let a girl beat you, you know? And, um, it's funny. Like I experienced all that stuff as, as a child, but still was like so proud to be a girl, but, but I wanted the armor of a boy. That was kind of how I identified myself. And so, um, you know, my, I, Eddie was pretty much my first real boyfriend because I then, by the time I got to high school, I was working two jobs by the time I was in high school. I was really pursuing this dream of going to college. Um, I really liked boys and was asked out quite a bit. Um, but I was very afraid of taking them home to meet my dad. And I knew that my dad, he wouldn't let me date and he was always disapproving of me. So I knew he'd be disapproving of these guys. So there was definitely guys that I liked and I wish that I could date, but I didn't. Um, Eddie was kind of right place, right time. He was right place, right time. But I, you know, I know there's kind of some textbook stuff too, you know, that sometimes when, when girls are raised by an abusive, unapproving father, that they are constantly trying to find that approval in a man. And I was very well, well aware of that stigma all the way through college. Um, I'm a, I'm a communication studies major. That's one of the reasons why I went into that major was because I was so fascinated with how people communicate mm-hmm. and the, all the different types, interpersonal, um, organizational, there's gender communication, um, dysfunctional communication, persuade, like I just dove into that. And I, in some ways wanted to kind of study myself and I did not want to be a textbook, you know, abused child. I didn't want to be that girl that was dating every guy on the block and hoping to be approved by somebody. And so I just chose not to date. And I think that was also probably a safe place for me too. I always told myself if I'm going to date somebody, then it's going to be somebody that is so opposite of, of my dad. And so I was so particular. Um, and I think it was wonderful because Eddie and I were, you know, we were such good, we were very, very good friends for about a year and a half before we dated. You so. guys hit it right. Yeah, hit it right. <laughs> when did sports first come into your life? Very young. I'd say I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't doing sports and I'd say I, I started playing soccer when I was four. I think most kids that play soccer start when they're four. That's a, a first sport for many of us. Didn't mm-hmm. you play? I did. Soccer? I, I still have photos at my dad's <laughs> house of me being in this oversized yeah. uniform that's like with short <laughs> sleeves, but it was like hanging down to my wrist down because wrist. it was so long. Socks um, connecting to your shorts. And- <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It looked like you just had like a unitard on. Yeah. But, um, I definitely played soccer, basketball, probably t-ball as well when I was a young kid. Mm-hmm. But yeah. soccer's, yeah. When, it, one of those ones you just get into early. Yeah. Yeah. That when we were a soccer family, it was also so cheap mm. and my dad was a referee and I think he was a, com- like ended up being a commissioner. So help head one up. So we always got to play for free and, um, and that worked great for a family of our size. And, but yeah, so soccer was always part of my life. Um, I did some local recreational gymnastics classes for a while through the city. And then, um, my first running race when I was seven and I loved, I I was always very competitive. I think too, when you grow up in a really big family, Mm -hmm. it's easy. And you're in the middle. Yeah. And you're in the middle. It's just easy to be competitive. And we're all very close in age. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have an Irish twin. My sister Janelle is only 13 months older than me. And then the rest of us are all 21 months apart. So (laughs) we're, we're more similar than I think I first (laughs) Do you have an Irish twin as well? (laughs) My sister Jamie is one year, one month and one day younger than me. No way. 
Oh my gosh. And I'm one of four, but I'm the oldest. Oh, okay. And that is so between funny. the four of us, there's less than five years. Yeah, but the all the all the girls were like that. My I don't know what my mom was thinking, but <laughs> she loved children. <laughs> so you just touched on competitiveness. I was going to ask mm. that question, so I'd like to dig into it a mm. little more. Did you know you were competitive from the time that you were a young kid, that whether it was a soccer game or a running race or maybe it was in school that you wanted to be better than everyone else? Yeah, always. And I that was really fun for me. So competing, whether it was tag, um, even, I even remember our teacher, I don't know if they do this anymore in the classrooms because maybe it's too competitive, but we would get this um, 100 problem multiplication one sheet page and she whoever would finish whoever finished first with the most right would you know you get a star and I remember in, in third grade I would I I just I'd study that I had to be first every single time and as soon as I was done I'd just stand up out of my chair I'm done I'm done like I just everything that could be a competition or or was a competition just got me so fired up I loved it and I I loved winning um, and I just loved games. It could be shoots and ladders or, you know, tag on the playground. Didn't matter. Yeah, it didn't matter. Has that changed at all? <laughs> tame, um, tamed itself? <laughs> it's tamed itself a tiny bit. The, Eddie is extremely competitive too. And both of our, our children are very competitive. So um, it's alive and well in our home. <laughs> <laughs> but I think now is I, I, I'm one thing I am happy about is I, I do generally still find a lot of joy in it. And I, um, you know, my, my personality is like, I can be best friends with all my competitors. I just, I, I'm not bothered like talking to girls before a race at all. Um, I know how to really separate my mind from like, I, I, I want to, kick your tail in this race too. This has nothing to do with like how I see you as a Not human personal, being. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's all about the game about, about the competition, which is so fun, right? Like how, and realizing too, that when you have good competition, that's what makes it so fun. I think you and I had talked about this earlier, the, you know, the different races that I was trying to choose between. And the one I went with was because there it's, a, it's very deep in competition. It has nothing to do with where I'm ranking. Like, I know that many of those women could kick my tail, <laughs> but I like that because that's where the good stuff happens. Right. So and they're going to help push you to be your best. Exactly. And there, I think there's something fun about that. I think that's why too, growing up, like I loved playing with the boys cause they brought something else out me that was different when I played with the girls. And even when I started trail running, I, I only ran with guys. Um, they were faster, they were stronger, you know, and they, they were okay with, you know, hollering at me and telling me to suck it up and go a little bit faster and go harder up the mountain. I mean, I, I really thrive on that. And so, um, yeah, competition is, is good. Tell me about that first running race at seven years old. <laughs> oh my gosh. I loved it. I think most kids are probably like this. We have no concept of pacing. <laughs> it's just most you, adults are still like that too. <laughs> just putting my actually, coaching hat on there for a second. I'll be quiet now. That is a very true, valid statement. I'm not many of us can argue that. Um, yeah, I just remember running to um, complete exhaustion. I think my dad had to pick me up. What was the distance? 1K. Okay. <laughs> 
and it was a little cross country course. So it started going up a hill and then it was a downhill finish on the grass. And, um, I loved that feeling again. I re I remember like being, I do this all the time. But I, every, anytime I'd step into the start line, I'd check everyone's shoes and I'd make sure that nobody was crossing the line, you know, and I'd point out if they were like, I just, I get so fired up at, at the start line. And my goal was to beat everyone immediately. And that's kind of how I ran was just from the get go. If it was a one K I was running it like it was a 40, 40 meter race. <laughs> and I usually, <laughs> I would, I, I would be beat red by the time I crossed that finish line. And, um, but I, I loved it. And my, you know, you have a big family, so that's exciting too, as a little kid, the cheering and the excitement, you know, as you run, you just, you feel good. Not to fast forward through too much, but there's a lot more that I still want to cover before we wrap up this conversation. We three and hours. I know we have, well, and we have a hard stop before the kids get home. Yeah. So I need to be cognizant of the time, but you described how you played soccer competitively mm -hmm. into college. Mm -hmm. When did the switch flip to running? What was your first race or running experience that you remember as an adult? Mm -hmm. Let's see. Or, yeah. when it, or when it had a role in your yeah, life. Yeah, a role in my life. Yeah, because I'd say for most athletes, regardless of your sport, like running is complement, complimentary, right? Like you have sure. to do it. Um, so I was, I did like a year of cross country in middle school and then I was a sprinter in high school. And um, and then when I hit college, it was, it was purely, you know, summer hardcore training. You go out for five mile runs. That's just what you do. So I knew I had um, that endurance. And I'd always loved running from the time I was a little girl. It was the way that I, um, would explore. And, and in some ways it was, I remember at 12 going out and running and being gone for a long time. And my mom being really concerned and her buying me a body alarm. Cause she was like, I can't keep track of you, but pull this or push this button if anyone <laughs> tries to take you. So running was always something that mattered to me that, um, that I just naturally loved. And I, I can't remember a time that it wasn't a part of my life. Um, but when I then transitioned to, Hey, I should sign up for a race. It was, that wasn't until after college to this day, I still have never raced a 5k or a 10k. Um, they've always been like, um, I, I've, I've done a charity 5k walk and then a couple of times I jumped in and in, in a 10k just like during a, a training week, but I've never known what, what's that like? How can I train? What was for your my first organized 10K? race as an adult? Was it a marathon? Half marathon? Uh, it was, it was, uh, a 10k in Irvine. Okay. Um, but I think I signed up for it like a few days before it was like, during, so I guess, I guess that wouldn't be a good, I, a good, um, example. Cause I didn't train for it. Mm -hmm. It was like, Oh, I should probably do a 10 K cause I think this is what people do. Um, I did a half marathon because I was training for LA marathon. So LA marathon was, I'd say that's my first real race. What year was that? That was, um, two. Th so it was the year Eddie and I got married. It was 2001. Wait, were we already married? No, it was 2001. So it was leading up to us getting married and, um, it was terrible. I mean, the, the result was bad. I, I think it took me four hours and 25 minutes. I had bloody feet and blisters and 
it was really hard to walk for two weeks. I was a teacher at that time and I worked on the second floor. So going up and down the stairs, I remember I was in so much pain, but I remember finishing that and, and feeling like I need to do that again. But one of the things that really drew me was I then learned about Boston and it was just that competitive edge again that had never left me. I think when I stop playing soccer, that, that desire that I had had my whole life to be a professional athlete had never left. And so I actually still trained pretty hard. I'd go to the gym, I'd run in the morning and then I'd run at night. I'd go on these long runs and I, I didn't have this like goal, but it was almost like I knew I was just supposed to be doing this because it was so much a part of me. And I don't think I was ready to let it go. It was just a new avenue. It was just a new avenue. So it was kind of like, just keep going. If even if you can't see what you're working toward, and sometimes it's just how it is, like you need to still be pressing forward. And so I was still keeping my body strong. I was still staying fit. And running was kind of like the most natural thing to do, especially now that I was I was a teacher at this time. I taught freshman English. Um, I could do that in the morning, can do it wherever. It was cheap and um, it kept me in great shape. So the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon was my second marathon and I qualified for Boston there. And then Boston was my third marathon and then I got pregnant. So I had only run three races on the road and I had no idea what I was doing during that time. And when Mackenzie was six months old, I ran the Marine Corps marathon, um, I think in just under four hours, just as a way to kind of get back in shape. I ran, I trained the whole thing with a jogging stroller. Were you living here in Southern California? We had just moved back from what we lived in Washington DC for a couple of years. She okay. was born over there and then we had just moved back, but I had already, it was kind of an unexpected move back and we, I had already signed up for it and Eddie was like, yeah, we'll still go back and do it. So we did that, but that was, that was pretty much it. I, I, I don't think I ever developed like this, um, like this dream or like belief that, Hey, maybe I could become a professional road marathoner. I had a lot of heroes and people that I looked up to and I enjoyed the solitude and being able to think as I ran, but you know, I never considered myself like a road runner. Was it anything I ever bragged about or talked very much about? Well, and unlike a lot of other <laughs> sports, even soccer, which is pretty subjective, one coach mm-hmm. can look at a player and say, oh, they're pretty good. And the other coach could look yes. at him and say like, no, she's got no ball skills yes. at all. Running's black and white on yes. the road. It's yeah. the top women are running 220 and you yeah. qualified for Boston at 320. Yeah. And it's like, there's an hour gap. <laughs> there's there. an hour gap. You're nobody. <laughs> I'm not having delusions that yeah. I'm going to be getting a big contract anytime yeah. soon. When did <laughs> trail that. running come into the picture for you? So it was 2000. Um, Isaiah was a baby. Yeah. So it was 2007 when I, I heard about it. It, you know, I, at this time I was running my, we were back in, in, in Orange County. I was running my own fitness business. I'd open, I kind of founded this fitness business cause I wanted to be a stay at home mom. And, um, and so I was always getting all these fitness magazines and I'd get runner's world. I loved reading runner's world at that time. It was, and, and I came across an article that had Ann Trayson and Jen Shelton, Dean Carnassus and this idea that people could run a hundred miles completely blew my mind. And really the greatest, 
thing that pulled me to it, which I think has always just been something that I have felt since a little girl is, isn't it so amazing what our bodies are capable of doing? I have always been fascinated with that. And I still believe that we have not fully tapped into really what we're capable of doing and really what it is that we can handle. And we hear these crazy stories sometimes, right? Like the grandma that lifted a car off her grandson, you know, to save him, you know, like how in the world can you do that? Well, it's like, no, that that's like in us. Like that is in, in our makeup as human beings. We are so much stronger and more resilient than we think we are. And so I was naturally drawn to, wait a minute, you can run a hundred miles in one day without, st- I really want to do that. And so did you become laser focused on it? I did. And I, and I am, I mean, that is more of my, of my personality. I'm kind of like that when I'm into something, I'm going to give 100%. I'm going to, and I'm a research junkie at my core. And so for the next year, I read everything I could find. I researched everything. I mean, I just, I became a student long before I, I ran a race and I wanted to learn everything about it. And I wasn't afraid to reach out to people randomly. So I would Google, not Google on Facebook. I would type in ultra runner and see whose names would come up. And I would just message them and ask them questions. I was a weirdo. And, um, and I was like, wow, people are really nice in this community. Cause they're writing me back and they're giving me all this advice. And, and so by the time it was 2009, when I started training for my, for my first ultra and then my first race, I thought that I'd already, because I'd already run several marathons. I was like, why would I sign up for a 50 K? And like, that doesn't challenge me six more miles. Like I'm going to sign up and, and do a, um, or five more miles, do a 50 mile. That sounds big. So I signed up for American river 50. And in April, 2010, that was, that was my first race with two babies and never having run on trails. I'd say 80% of it. I trained on a treadmill, um, and with a jogging stroller. <laughs> what was that first race like? Oh my gosh. I loved it. I, I, oh my, I think I am. There's a lot of road on that course. It's half, it's 50, 50. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first 25 is, is on a bike path. I think the races, the course has since changed, but yeah, at that time, um, and then the second half was, was a lot of single track, which was just beautiful. But my family was there. My, my, my kids, there's a lot of pictures on Facebook of this. I, I post this one in particular over and over again. And you and I exchanged pictures recently. <laughs> I know which one you're talking about. It's a great photo. It is so great. I'm smiling at Eddie and, and our best friend. So our best friends live up north by, by this race course. And my best friend is an incredible runner. She's a road runner. And so she was pacing me. She has four kids. We have two and all our kids were really young at this time. And, and so the dads are going all over the course trying to find us because, um, Leslie was, was going to be pacing me. So, but th- my favorite picture is Isaiah and Mackenzie, both chasing me. They're like 15, 20 yards behind me. And Isaiah is just freaking out because every time he sees me, I run away from him. And if you know, my children, I, and still am my, I'm very, very close with my kids. And, you know, even now when I leave, it's, it's, very difficult to leave them, but we have this really sweet relationship. And Isaiah has always been more of a mama's boy and very clingy to me. And 
it was that was the toughest part. I think was was seeing him and then seeing him cry because he's only one. Your heart's melting while you're running away <laughs> yes. from him. Yes, and you know it was Brett Rivers. I think that took all these pictures for me, and we still laugh about it because I'll I'll repost them. And you're like, I remember that. I'm the one that took those pictures because you're like, who's that mom with her kids chasing That's her to every crazy. aid station? But no, it was a great race. I um right before I ran it. I heard about Western States. So um, in true fashion, my number one goal was to get a golden ticket. My first race, I thought, how cool the top three people get. And that was a golden ticket race that at was the time. A, at the time, and it was top three. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, dude, I am how awesome to run my first ultra and, and then go to Western States. That was I, your goal. <laughs> that was my goal. I was not very wise. <laughs> but that's kind of always just how I thought. You know, it's just why not shoot – shoot for this, you know, for the moon. And, um, I did not get the nutrition part right whatsoever. I think I tried to run it just on one bottle of Cytomax. <laughs> you remember how popular that was? I, I knew it was a good one because Ryan Hall used to promote it all the time. And I loved Ryan and Sarah Hall. They'd make pancakes out of it. And so I was like, all right, I got my one bottle of Cytomax and I'd never eaten before in, in a race. Like I, I mean, there's gels, right? I, so I think I had like one gel and a bottle of Cytomax in it, mile 36. It was cramping from head to toe. And I remember kind of like yelping a little bit on the trail and, um, this really sweet runner named John blue came back and he's like, what have you eaten? And I said, nothing. When was the last time you took salt? Salt? Like, like, what do you mean? You were a total rookie. I was a, I was a mess. Yeah. So, um, and at that time I think I was in fourth place. So I was, I was moving really well. I loved it. And, uh, but I ended up getting eighth place. I think I, finish like in 740 or something like that. But I was hooked and I ended up running two more 50 mile file, 50 mile races within the next four weeks after that. I don't know that you've ever told me that story, but it's interesting <laughs> to hear it because now you've been at this for a while, mm-hmm. 10 years or yeah. so at this point, uh-huh. you've had some great success. You're very competent as an ultra distance <laughs> Racer, And I think it's just a good takeaway for people listening to this that someone of your stature, who a lot of people look up to, did everything wrong in her first <laughs> 50 mile. Trained on a treadmill, <laughs> took a bottle of Cytomax, uh, cramped from head to toe. We yeah. can all improve. Back to the whole journey side yes. of this thing. It's yeah. not about any one particular instance. Mm-hmm. It's what we can take away from those and apply it to the next one, which you did in a matter of <laughs> weeks afterward. Yeah. What was your first 100? My first 100 was Angela's Crest 100. So I ran, as I just said, I did three 50s within five weeks, and then I ran a 50K and a 100K um, just a couple months later and gave myself a horrific IT band injury. Did you have a coach at the time or were you just doing this on your own? No, I didn't have a coach at the time. I had no idea what I was doing. It was like, what are people doing on social media? And there wasn't like books or plant. There was nothing out there. Like anything that I would Google was very old school. It was like everyone would run six miles every day. And then, then they'd do like a 30 and a 40 miler on Saturday and Sunday. It was such old school thinking. Don't do that at home. Don't do that. So I, I knew with a little bit of, of marathoning the training, I knew that doesn't sound right. And so I, I kind of made like a hybrid of the two on my own, but, um, 
you know, that my, my personality is go hard, go home. I'm going to push and I'm strong and fit. Like I can do all these races. So by, um, August of 2010, I had such a terrible IT band injury. I couldn't run the rest of the year. So at the end of 2010, and I said this earlier, this time in my life, um, and my kids were so little, um, you know, and I was doing, I was running my own fitness business and, I love, I really love being a mom. I was actually really conflicted about continuing in 2011 as ultra running because I knew how much time it took. Um, it was something else that took my attention and it wasn't like I was going to become professional in it. That was my thinking. I'm not going to become professional. There's no money and no one knows it's crazy. Everyone thinks that I'm crazy. You know, there's, when I tell people I do this, they haven't heard about it. When I explain the distances I'm doing, it's always, I don't even drive that far. And then it's why I didn't have a lot of like jovial support. And there wasn't really a lot of people that I could run with. I was virtually stepping out and doing this on my own. And for whatever reason, I loved it. And so at the end of 2010, I'm injured and I, reminded myself, I said, I need to be careful because I know how I am and I can go 100 miles an hour into this thing and not, and just get lost in it. Mm -hmm. So I actually took 2011 off. Um, there's no results for me in, in 2011. And what part of it was I wanted to heal and I wanted to do it right. And I had a lot of conversations with my husband about it too. So that's my next question is mm -hmm. what was the dialogue like in mm -hmm. the household with Eddie and I imagine the kids were probably too young to they were so young. talk to you about yeah. it at that time, but was he supportive of you continuing to pursue this? Did he <laughs> realize there needed to be a better balance? I'd love to get some insight. On yeah. That. And this is a great question. I get asked this a lot. Well, actually people will contact me because they're very conflicted in this and I get it. And I don't think that there is one right answer because when you're talking about a relationship, everyone's relationship is, is unique. And at the core of every good relationship is communication. So no matter how difficult it is, you have to communicate those things. And I'll say that for a few years, Eddie and I really hit heads on this. And at the beginning, he was like, why are you, why are you doing this? He, we grew up as soccer players together. That's where we connected. That was like our whole life. And you know, he, he definitely saw me as flourishing with my fitness business and I was able to stay at home with the kids. Like our life was, was good. It was everything that he dreamed of. And now I was doing this crazy thing. So yeah, I'll be candid and say he was not too happy. So then I took 2011 off and, you know, my husband isn't unreasonable by any stretch. And when we, when I took 2011 off, I think he could tell that I was sad. And, you know, I didn't always share it, but he at one point just said, you know, I never said that I wanted you to stop running. Like, I don't, I want you to do what, you know, what you love. It's just, it's hard because the kids, so he just expressed everything that was hard for him about it. And so I then talked to them like, well, can I sign up for this hundred mile, which was Andrew's Crest 100s in 2012. And he agreed. And by the time I got, that was July, 2012. By the time I had trained for that, which was a lot of time away in the mountains on that course, by the time I got up to the start line, I had unbeknownst to me, a stress fracture in my leg, which I thought was just like, 
race jitters, a little bit of a shin splint because I've been training so hard. And about halfway into the race, I realized, no, this is, this is really bad. And so I limped the last like 40 or so miles of that race. That was my first experience of a hundred mile race. And then the rest of that year, I didn't really do anything until the very end of that year. I think it was December. I did a 15 K to test it, to see if I could run on it again. Um, it wasn't anything I had trained for. It was just, I'm going to go out and see if I can run this, but I'd say from 2000, 12 until 2000, like 14 or 15, it put a lot of stress on our relationship, which looking back now, there's definitely things that I regret about that because I don't, I don't think I did a good enough job communicating to him what it was that I really wanted to do. And I, during that time too, I did develop a dream of like, wait, I think I could, I could do this professionally. Cause I was placing pretty well and at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014 is when Nike contacted me. So I, there was this element of where I felt like if I could just prove to him that it is worth my while, because I wasn't making any money, I was spending money. And I wasn't like taking the kids with me, I was spending time away from the kids. So looking back, like now from his perspective. You can see it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and so like any relationship, it's like you have those seasons where you're hitting heads, where you're being stubborn and it was just hard. And there was a lot of distance between us. And, you know, I still even have days where I grieve that, you know, cause I didn't get to share in that joy of me developing into this athlete of developing like even signing. Like I remember when I signed with Nike, it was very like, you know, I just kind of told him when I was in the kitchen, like, Oh yeah, um, Nike contacted me and, they're asking me to fly up next Tuesday. And he was just like floored because I, at this point I felt like, well, I'm just not going to talk a lot about the running. Cause I know it makes him upset. And then all, now here I am getting signed by Nike. But also as we talked a little <laughs> bit about earlier, not allowing yourself to recognize that victory. Not at all. There are reasons why you weren't allowing yourself to. Yeah. But point being mm-hmm. you, I don't want to say downplayed it, but you kind of did. Uh, I did. Yeah. And I was actually, because our relationship was so strained at this time, I, I also had a lot of, um, self-confidence issues. You know, he's my best friend. He's, he always has been, he's supported me in everything I've done. Um, and so to not really share in that joy as I built up in the sport was really difficult for me. So when Nike did contact me, all that I could think of was the negative things. And, and I, I, um, and Billy will tell you this too. I, I forwarded the email to Billy and Colin and, um, Josh and David. And I said, do you guys think this is legit? And they're like, what are you talking? Yes. Respond. Like they're asking you to sign with them. But in my heart, all I could think of is like, if I sign with these guys, I'm going to be ripped to shreds. Like who am I? there's so many girls that are better than me. There's so many other athletes that deserve this. Like I, I really don't deserve this. I don't know how it's going to go. And, ah, oh, the Brad's too big. They're too, I had all of these doubts and, you know, there's a little piece of that. Um, Billy's very first film was Western time and he captures a little of that. When I talk about going through this really difficult time in my life where I wasn't feeling good about myself, that was it. It was just, 
being so distant from the man that was closest to me out of my entire life and always has been and not being able to share in that joy and, and kind of not even being, you know, I was excited, like, oh my gosh, it's a dream come true. What I've wanted for my entire life since I was a little girl, I've wanted to be a professional athlete. Like, and now the biggest brand is asking me to run for them. What is wrong? <laughs> and so, you know, those guys in during that time, they were such good friends to me, but they were always kind of, come on, Sally, come on. You can do this. Believe in yourself. So when I ran my second hundred, which was Western States, the first year that I'd run it, you know, getting that golden ticket at Sean O'Brien, it was, I remember just bawling because it wasn't, it wasn't just like, yeah, I get to go to Western States. It was just like, remember who you are and, and get back to being who you are. Cause I had lost, you know, a lot of that. Is that particular race a big turning point for you then? Yeah, I think that was probably, um, both competitively and beyond that. Yeah. Sean O'Brien was really, um, I felt a lot of pressure cause I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm wearing a brand. And, and I remember it was like only five weeks I'd been signed with them. And I remember thinking as I was going to that start line was like, if I fail, like everyone's going to laugh at me. Like everything that I've told myself, like she's not good enough. Why did they sign her is true. No, it's true. Like this is like, I should not be signed by them. Like, so when I got that golden ticket, when I came in second place, I was like, wait, like maybe, maybe I am okay. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I can do this. And, um, those next four months after were it, I, I fought a lot of demons, um, I didn't even show up to Western States in as good a shape as I was in at Sean O'Brien. I had so much emotional stress in my life that I had physical reactions to it. And I remember I gained like 10 pounds. I, I couldn't even go on a flat run without my whole body cramping up. I remember instead of going to the Western States, um, weekend, I went away to, um, to Maine at this like women's retreat and just to try and like get away and calm my mind and just be still because I was such a mess. And so it was kind of like the same story all over again. I getting to Western States and then I was having a terrible race. You know, I was like 17th place and I wasn't feeling great. And then I hurt my knee midway through. And I remember when Dave Daly picked me up at Forest Hill and him saying like, it was his, his, he kept on saying it over and over. He's like, why not you? He's like, you train so hard. I know you can do this. I know you're 16th or 17th place right now, but he's like, you can do this. And I remember- and this just, isn't the finish line. Yeah, huh? It's not the finish line yeah, for us till- Exactly. 40 miles to go. And I was just like, my knee hurts. This is not turning out the way it is. Like the last six months have been terrible. And, and he just wouldn't let me give up to that. And he's like, let's go get someone. And so every time I passed a girl, he would count it out. Okay. You're 16th now. Okay. You're 15th, you're 14th. And by the time I got to green gate, I was in 10th place. And I, I just, I, I'll never forget that race. I think that'll be one of the most special races without it having to do anything with me as an athlete or my performance, but just the power of the people that go with us on the journey, the people that take the time to see us for who we are, to meet us in our darkest moments 
and to walk with us. And I can say without a doubt that that's what those guys were. And, and Eddie was too. I just didn't see it. I had such a hard time seeing it. He never went anywhere. He was always there for me. And it just wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. And, you know, it wasn't until about 2015 that we just had this incredible you know, conversation and kind of like a, a breaking through. And so much of it, again, as I was saying before, it had to do just the way that we communicate, right? And and realizing that sometimes when we feel like, and I'm really saying this to, to people that are listening that are experiencing this as ultra runners or endurance athletes, or you're pursuing a dream that's taking up everything. It's so important that we remember who people are as individuals when they're supporting us, we all support each other differently. You know, this idea of it takes a village to raise a child or how important it is that you have people in your corner, it's because each one serves a different purpose and each one has a different strength and and we need each other. And I think there is definitely time where I just heaped on so much onto him that it wasn't fair. And you know, looking, looking back now, I just, I realize he, he was there the whole time. He's always been like my roots, you know, just like a redwood tree. And, um, and I'm more kind of like a wild bird <laughs> and I keep coming back to the same tree. <laughs> well, I know we've only got a few minutes here before we have to wrap up. I'd love mm. to touch on this year's UTMB. It's a race that you have competed in now a number of times. You and I were there a year ago in 2018, which was just a weird year on a number of, <laughs> a number of fronts. Uh, long story short, you DNF'd there, yeah. but we made that the first part of your year here in 2019. Mm -hmm. Take me through the last half of that race. <laughs> the last half of the race was run entirely um on mental grit i think is probably the the best way because my body just wasn't having it i, I would say that what i have experienced i've run it five times now so what i've experienced in the last um, in the four previous races, I was experiencing the exact same thing here and I didn't want to accept it. I was so frustrated and, you know, it's a mix of, of just some breathing issues that I've had for a while that I got answers to this year that have helped me understand and not be so hard on myself. This, this is just what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in this year, you know, when you, when you were coaching me, we had some really great workouts and I just felt really fit. I was really confident and so confident in my experience. I know the course so well. When I got around to, to the halfway point, um, I, I'm not sure I've ever been in such like a, a deep black hole, both physically. I mean, I was, I was bonked and, you know, I thought medical was maybe going to pull me, um, the previous, I think it was mile 41 aid station said, you have to go and see the doctor in Cormier, which is the halfway. And I didn't, um, because I thought maybe they'd pull me from the race, but you're pretty fired up coming into Cormier. I was so angry. Yeah. And you had to hear it. Right. So I came up, I, I was forced to stay at 41 for almost an hour. Um, it, yeah, I can't call, I can't remember the name of the aid station at this moment, but 
yeah, I was, I was upset about that. I was upset because obviously it threw me back in placement. Um, but probably the biggest thing was I'm repeating and feeling everything I felt for the past four years, everything that I trained not to do, everything that, you know, I, I wouldn't say fear it. Like I don't, fear those things in a race. Like if I have pain or cramping or nausea, like I'm not afraid of that. It's like, this is, this is part of the sport. But, um, I think I, I had to make a decision and, um, thankfully you were there to, to help me through that. Um, I had to make a decision to just accept that you probably aren't going to finish in a time that you aimed for and a placement that you hoped for and probably a performance that you're going to be proud of, but you need to finish. And every time, you know, every aid station, I think I saw you four time, four more times after that, um, more and more people came. So that too, I think really lifted just my heart because I was so focused on how I'm feeling and how I'm failing all of the goals that I had set for myself. And I was just miserable. And then every time I got into an aid station, you know, Chris was there crewing me inside and then you would kind of walk me in and walk me out. And, you know, you were showing me videos of my family and them sending me messages. And you're reminding me like, there are so many people on social media cheering for you. You need to remember there's an audience of people that are just wishing you well. And and then it was my teammates. I'd, all my teammates ran CCC that year. So then it was my teammates started to show up at the eight stations. And I'm like, man, they've just run 100K and they're out here hobbling. And then Zach Miller came out. You know, Zach Miller had an injury and he comes out and he's limping on one leg. And then, you know, Billy came out too. And then, so it was by the time I got to the last aid station before the finish, there was like a tribe. I mean, there's like 15 of you guys all cheering me as I'm climbing up the mountain Um, and I just, I remember getting a little teary eyed because I was like, this is, yes, this is it right here. You know, you, and you had said, we talked about it earlier. It's like, you, you have to remember that it's not about just that podium finish that you, you know, that you yearn for. It's really, who are you as an athlete in the midst of failure, of challenges, of letdown? Who are you? And you have to learn to respond in a way that you're proud of. And I think that, you know, that is just as much of a victory is being able to respond in a way that you're proud of. And, you know, I just, I remember very distinctly hugging you at the finish line and telling you, thank you so much for not giving up on me and not letting me give up. That meant, it meant the world to me because it was, I think something that I, you know, I've said this again and again, I have to come back to that. I have to remind myself over and over like this is, you know, this, this race is hard. There's a lot of people that wish that they could do it. But at the end of the day, the greatest part is always the journey. And, you know, when I got to that finish line, we had this huge group picture, you know, and I've, I've looked at that picture so many times. I haven't done my final post on UTMB. I've waited. It's been like two weeks because it's so tender, but the whole final post is about the people on the journey. And that will go down as my greatest and most favorite UTMB experience ever. It has nothing to do with how I got across that course and everything to do with the people who reminded me why we do what we do and why we are on this journey. And when I'm on my deathbed, if I get that opportunity to actually be on a deathbed and die peacefully, it's 
the people that are surrounding me that that's all that I'm going to care about. I'm not going to want someone to say, hey, bring me my UTMB trophy. Hey, replay that time when I crossed the tape first. I want to be around the people that supported me and loved me. And I felt like that's what it was at UTMB. We could go on (laughs) for another two, three, four hours. So we will have to do around two. (laughs) I don't know when we'll do that, but I can't think of a more beautiful way to wrap all of Mm. this up. The last thing that you just said encapsulated a lot of the high points of this conversation, your final moments with your mom Mm -hmm. and what she wanted during her final Mm -hmm. time on earth was not a trophy or a physical object. It Mm -hmm. was the people in her life, much as you just described Mm -hmm. there. And the way you described your Western States finish and what you were thinking of with Dave when you got to Greengate and got through that is almost identical to what you just described for mm-hmm. UTMB. I'm not sure if that clicked in your head when mm-hmm. you were just telling me, but I, I was like, chills. you almost just told <laughs> the same story yeah. twice in a row. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. I just think it's a, I just think it's a really beautiful way to wrap up what is important, mm-hmm. not just about, running but about this life that we live so thank you for sharing that and thank you for the opportunity all right another episode in the books i really hope you enjoyed it if you did or heck even if you didn't go to the apple podcast app whatever platform you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review It only takes a second, it helps new listeners to discover the show, and it lets me know what's really resonating with you. Also, a big thank you to Aftershocks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented, best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can listen to your music and hear your surroundings. To learn more and save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, visit tms.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, the editing, the music, all of it. It's all John, and he's a big part of my small team here at the Morning Shakeout. Also, a couple more thank yous to some members of my team, Jeff Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout. You can find that at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.